1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Elizabeth Farfan Santos, who is the author of the book Undocumented Motherhood: Conversations on Love, Trauma, and Border Crossing, published by the University of Texas Press. Dr. Farfan Santos, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book Undocumented Motherhood, and I've really admired your work since reading Black Bodies, Black Rights: The Politics of Quilombismo in Contemporary Brazil. I think that was also published by University of Texas Press, but we, you know, we share this this interest in Brazil and this interest in um, the politics of Uh, of race in the in the country and but this next book that you've written undocumented motherhood follows the life and struggles of one woman an undocumented mother and her challenges with the medical system in the united states and so i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book
0: Yes, um, thank you so much, and you know uh, we do we do share this research. So I'm really excited to be part of this podcast, and I think this is the first one that I've done that's you know that's directly toward the anthropology community. So that's that's exciting. Um, yeah, so I came to write this book. I had been doing research on health access for undocumented communities uh, for quite some time. The research started in 2014, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was right around the time the Affordable Care Act was going into effect, uh, and so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of movement um, within the politics of our healthcare system. For the first time, we were seeing uh, the potential for a well, not the potential, but we were seeing a comprehensive healthcare reform in our country. Something that you know most of us, most of the people in my age group, have never seen in our lifetime. And um, so that was um, very interesting to me. I've always been interested in the healthcare system and the politics of the healthcare system, namely because I was raised in the public health system, and you know we had on and off access to healthcare, growing to to health insurance and to uh, stable healthcare growing up. Um, but you know we always had public health. Um, the public health system was always kind of supportive to our family. So, um, it's always been something that I've been interested in. Um, but you know, I was, I was especially, um, um, Shocked when you know I've, i I heard that you know undocumented immigrants kind of as a mass were going to be excluded from um, any kind of you know um, support within uh, the Affordable Care Act and the new policy reforms and not just that they were going to be excluded but the way in which they were excluded very very verbally very specifically as a as a cohort um, you know was 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 really impactful and triggering. And, um, it seemed like something important to look at, um, um, largely because I, I, uh, my family is an immigrant family. Um, I do have undocumented, I did have undocumented members in my family, I'm no longer undocumented, um, uh, but I did grow up with those experiences. And so, um, these are, these are, these are things that are always, um, uh, in my kind of, um, that I'm always thinking about these roles and these multiple roles within within my family and within Latinx families in general. Um, and so I was doing that research and I published uh, several articles um, that specifically were speaking to the public health system and with public health intellectuals, scholars, and medical anthropology scholars you know, about what this uh, might look like for marginalized communities more broadly, but specifically for undocumented communities. Um, at the same time, when I went out to do that research, you know, I was um, looking for these experiences, and what I found were a lot of mothers who were more interested in talking about their, their maternal experiences and their children than they were about medical exclusions you know, more specifically. Um, so I was uh, doing research in public health centers and community health clinics and with community health workers. Um, and I was interviewing mothers and I was getting a lot of stories about maternal experiences and the maternal experience. Uh, so that's really where the book started. Um, and although in the beginning I did more uh, publish more work on uh, kind of the trends in um, the kinds of experiences that undocumented mothers or immigrant women were having, um, I always I knew from the beginning that I wanted to focus on a more single subject narratives, and even some of the articles uh, that I publish focus um, on you know a single subject or you know a small group of people. Um, you know as anthropologists you know we this is this is something that is also very much um, uh, unique to our practice right we don't we don't go out and, and research you know mass demographics and kind of get the kind of the quality the numbers uh, the sorry the quantity the numbers it's more about the quality um, and so you know we get we get in with a small group and we get deep right and there's there's a lot of benefit. Um, there's so much complexity just within one individual. Um, and that really can offer um, just understanding that experience and being able to get deep into one individual's experience allows for all kinds of um, questions and connections and um, uh, just just complexity, right? So. Um, after I was, you know, kind of published some more of the of the numbers and the trends and the and really kind of speaking more to the scientific community, I was able to coming come back to this initial interest in really doing a, a single subject narrative and focusing on one person um, and focusing on Claudia, who from the beginning when I met her, you know, really showed herself to be. Um, uh, one of the subjects that was most interested in kind of having a deeper um, uh, relationship with me as a researcher in terms of really um, me asking her about her life and sharing more of her experience than some of the other subjects.
1: Great, thank you so much for that introduction. And I'm glad that you mentioned that um, that the book focuses on this single individual, which I'm gonna ask you more about a little bit later in the interview, because I also found that to be fascinating. And so I wanted to start, I guess, with the beginning of the book, where you begin with Claudia's migration across the border, and Claudia is the undocumented mother that you focus on. And so it, it occurred to me as I was reading the book that um, other books that I've read about migration studies and border crossing don't really include many women, and we don't always see how border crossing can be a gendered experience. And so I wondered, what did you want to express with the story of Claudia's border crossing from Mexico into the United States?
0: Yes, um, uh, absolutely. There, you know, at least within American um, scholarship and anthropological scholarship and public health scholarship, there are very, um, there are not many studies that focus on the experiences of women. Not to say that women are not included, um, in immigration research and migration studies, um, but often they get included as you know, part of the population. Um, you know, one thing that happens, one thing that I'm that I'm doing with this book, um, and that also kind of connects with the reason for a single subject narrative, um, is um, really looking at um, uh, the the multiple layers of you know intersectional identities of an individual, right? And so um, one of the things that happens within um, the immigrant narrative currently is that, you know, it's been so politicized um, and so dehumanized, so objectified that you don't get this complexity of the human experience anymore, right? It's just the, polit- it's just the political label. It's an un- you're an undocumented immigrant and everything about that person's identity is erased to that political narrative. Um, And it's not to say that that label, that 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 politic is not also a significant part of their identity, but everything else that that human being has as part of their identity doesn't just disappear. Right. When you become undocumented. Right. You you add it to. (laughs) um, And so people continue being all of the different layers that they are. Um, And so. Um, within this research, you know, there, there is kind of a flattening of those, that, those layers of identity. Um, and one of those is gender, but not just gender, you know, in the sense of, okay, let's include women, right, as kind of sexual objects and, and bodies to be included, but also all of the different um, uh, roles, right, and, and um, experiences that come with being a woman in uh, society and within the migration experience. And so uh, within this book, you know, so the research that I was looking at, um, you know, it was there were so many uh, um, there were so many conclusions that were being made about the immigrant experience that if you look at them, particularly when it came to health and health access. Um, you know they they were really coming from that narrative of the young male immigrant. And that used to be the case. you know it used to be the case that young men between the ages of eighteen and 30, 30 you know were the primary kind of migrant. Um, that's not the case anymore right We know now that the majority of migrants now are women and children right this is the case this is international now not even you know just in the United States but especially in the United States women are um, uh, have a higher percentage of, of, of numbers in the migrant population than any other group. Um, and so when you when you're when you're when you're interviewing young men between ages you know 18 and 35 and you're asking them about their access to health care, well yeah, a lot of them are gonna say they don't go to the doctor or they're not interested in their health because you know, as you know, generally across racial and ethnic groups, women are the ones that are kind of the health navigators and health providers for their families, right? And for for men, right? They're the ones that take men to the doctor. So, especially when it has to do with health access, talking to women makes a big difference. Talking to mothers makes an enormous difference, right? So it's a very big difference talking to a mother versus an 18-year-old Man, right? Um, and so uh, you get different stories. Um, you get stories about, you know, very detailed interaction with the healthcare system, very detailed concern about not only um, their, you know, their their partner's health, but their, their, specifically their children's health, very copious notes about how they are taking care of that health, the interactions that they're having. Um, you know, this becomes This is not just, you know, uh, about how women access the healthcare system. This is also about the care work that women do. And again, going back to what are the roles, the gendered roles that women participate with within society. Um, and one of these roles really is, you know, being the kind of the caregivers, right? Sustaining, supporting their families, whether they want to or not, um, you know, and, and women embrace, uh, Mexican women embrace these roles, but these roles are also um, kind of, uh, you know, roles that they're put, put into, right? They, they do these things regardless, right? This is the role that they occupy. Um, and it's not valued, right? And so, um, you know, another, another um, um, kind of reality that comes out in focusing on uh, women's narratives in migration is kind of the, the human value that gets put on to immigrants, right? Um, and a lot of, we know that for undocumented immigrants, you know, their humanity is denied, their humanity is erased, um, and you know, there's all kinds of you know um, uh, scripts, you know, political scripts about immigrants stealing jobs and resources and coming here just to do these things, right? You know, these these are, are are not rooted in any kind of facts, right? And in in fact, quite opposite, right? Immigrants are paying a lot of money into the healthcare system and paying a lot in taxes. We hear these things over and over. Um, At the same time, you know, those of us that do immigration research and that support immigrant rights, a lot of times we have to go to those, you know, script, those capitalistic neoliberal scripts of saying, this is why immigrants are valuable because they work so hard and they pay so much. And it's this kind of again, it's a, it's a monetary capitalistic value. Well, maternal work doesn't get valued that way. We know that in American society, in any society, maternal work doesn't get that kind of value. In fact, it its value is erased. It's not even seen as work, right? So when you're talking about mothers who are doing the caregiving, right, this is to society, to a xenophobic society, this is the worst immigrant, right? This is the this is the zero value immigrant, right? That's not that's just making um, uh, anchor babies, right? There are all these kinds of labels um, about these women, and so you know, part of refocusing on or focusing on the on the on women and focusing on mothers is to say. To show all of the work that they do in supporting the family, supporting the health of their family and contributing to the survival uh, and thriving of communities, not just immigrant communities, but communities that end up, you know, spanning multiple statuses. Right. Uh, And 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 multiple experiences within the nation. Um, And this is labor um, that they're doing a lot of times uh at the cost of their own health and their own bodies right so these are contributions that they're making um and so you know uh it's it is focusing once we get to uh um, those multiple layers of experience and to those intersectional aspects of an identity, then we can start to even get deeper into those other things, right? But you can't get into that, can't get into care work. You can't start talking about these kinds of ways in which women support communities and all of these things, unless you really get into the specificity of that um, complex, you know, human narrative, that one human narrative. Yeah, thank you for that. That's so important, especially that
1: context of the the numbers of women and mothers and children who are migrating, um, and the, which kind of you know complicates our idea of uh, of like you said of young men narr- migrating across the the border,
0: um, and then. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing in relation to that. Sorry to interrupt you um, that I forgot to say. And so that uh, kind of everything I said really, really focuses on, you know, what women are doing as mothers. But there's also there's also an interest of mine in kind of showing the unique experience of women in the migration experience. And so one of the things that that you see in the beginning of the book is kind of the other kinds of. of interactions that women have when they're migrating across the border, right? And, you know, you see a lot of women experiencing sexual violence um, when they're migrating. A lot of women are migrating because they're leaving sexual violence. Um, And so there's a lot of um, uh, those unique experiences and then traumas that women carry, that women bring with them from that migration experience and those interactions with women. So in that first chapter, you see um, those first couple of chapters, you see, Claudia is not only you know kind of concerned about you know her safety vis-a-vis immigration officials, but she's also concerned about her safety migrating with predominantly women, uh, other men, right? And and having to see you know certain things happen. I, I won't give away the specifics of the book, but having to see things happen and having to being unsure, right, about. Uh, whether or not she's going to be physically safe mm-hmm. um, while she's migrating alone.
1: Yeah, that migration story was was just harrowing, um, and you know, even though I, I assume we we kind of know what's going to happen because we we know she gets to the United States, it was still very heart wrenching to read to read through it and to know that that was her experience, and then she has to take that with her, you know, into the United States, and then. But once she gets to the United States, the struggle kind of continues in that you follow her struggle at the medical system to get care for her daughter, Nati, um, who was either deaf or has a hearing disability. Um, and so you, you, know, you go into detail also about these struggles that she has in trying to get care for her daughter. And so I wondered if you could just say a little bit about what some of her struggles were in the medical system and what did you think you know, shaped or informed, uh, informed these struggles?
0: Yeah. Um, I think the majority of her struggles within the medical system had to do with being undocumented and being uninsured. Um, so there were, we know that in this country, um, access to healthcare is not a human right. Healthcare is not a human right. And if you are uninsured, um, you have very little access to resources. Um, so a lot of the, um, lack of access to resources that um, Claudia experienced, you know, had to do with just not having any kind of insurance. But this was also augmented by her undocumented status. If she were not undocumented, if she were a U.S. citizen, she might qualify for public health programs. Um, That would certainly help Nati a lot. So this was, was, you know, um, difficult because a lot of the some of the other undocumented women that I interviewed had immigrant, uh, had uh, citizen children. And, um, you know, that's a whole, that's a different kind of, uh, um, you know, sad experience because even while the children have access to resources, the parents don't have access to resources. And so that, you know, still creates a lot of issues, but, you know, with Claudia and Nati, um, you know, to have a child that has so many needs and to, you know, not have any, any, any support for those needs, um, you know, was incredibly difficult. And so you see throughout the book how much money she ha- she and her partner have to put into the healthcare system to pay private physicians. Um, so when they, you know, they when they first get here, they immediately get health and in- they they purchase health insurance. Um, because it's the only way to get her specialists uh, um, that she needs and therapies that she needs that Nathi needs. Uh, but that that private insurance, of course, they're paying fully out of pocket. Um, you know, there's no support, you know, for that. Um, and it's a lot of money. And, you know, in in addition to that, they're still paying more money um, for, in addition to the insurance, they're still paying money for the services, right, out of pocket for the services. And so, you know, this was this, this became a really interesting part of the narrative. um, The way that Claudia was able to kind of recite dollar by dollar how much she was making. And it was important for me to keep that in the book to show, um, you know, how, how uh, major of uh, an aspect of that experience it is. Because when you're paying for something out of pocket, when you're having to pull resources, from community members, you know, you're very clear on how many dollars are coming out for every everything, right? Um, and this is another misconception. Um, you know, as I said earlier, um, the idea that immigrants are stealing resources is just, it's completely unfounded because they don't even have access to public resources to, to, to be able to quote unquote steal anything. You know, people are paying so much money into the system, um, showing up to uh, appointments with cash, Right, and then and and a lot of times they're taking advantage of um, because physicians institutions know that they're paying in cash, you know, and that they and they and so one of the things that happens um, with Glavia is that you get physicians that are asked that are um, requesting exams and tests and all kinds of uh, things um, when they know that they are not going to be able to offer what. Uh, Claudia needs, which ultimately is uh, cochlear implant surgery. I mean, that's kind of the the journey is to get the implant surgery um, and all of the different um, uh, procedures that they pay for with promises of getting that surgery, and then it it never manifests. Um, I think that in addition to that, there's also um, Claudia also experiences a lot of discrimination and just um, being dismissed. Um, because she is a spanish speaking immigrant um who you know is learning english but is, has a hard time communicating in english and um uh and, and 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 is and is a woman right as well and so some of the reasons that some of the the reasons that she gets dismissed she gets you know dismissed for not understanding clearly, you know, um, you know, phys- physicians, are telling her how quote unquote, this is how it works. And, you know, you just don't understand. And, you know, she's, she's fighting, she's, she's, um, um, uh, advocating for her daughter and right? she's saying, I know what my daughter needs. I see her, I'm working with her. I understand, you know, and, you know, they're just kind of dismissing, you know, her, um, over and over again, dismissing her. And then creating, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, her identity, turning her identity into a problem, right? Telling her that, oh, it's because you, you know, you're confusing her because you don't know English, or you're confusing her because you don't know American Sign Language, and so there are these, um, all of these kinds of things that get thrown at Claudia about, you know, how she doesn't know, or how she could be doing better, or how she's not doing enough, and, you know. On the one hand, it's really frustrating and it speaks a lot to, and I talk about how you know within the healthcare system, you know, there are the you know, there is these, there are these dismissive tendencies when it comes to certain patients. Now, it's not all patients, but certainly when it comes to being an immigrant, Mexican, uninsured, female patient. Right, you know, it's it's almost like you have you have no rapport, you have no um, uh, you have no subject status, as I tell my my students. Right, you know, they they you aren't listened to. Right, you aren't believed, and so it takes so much more effort. So, and anybody, and I think that this is something that. You know uh, that being a woman of color, um, or even being uninsured, or being a woman, and you know that you can probably recall an experience like that with the healthcare system. You know, and so there are aspects, there are these things that connect us when it comes to marginalization and alienation within the health healthcare system in this country, that we can connect to even when we're not undocumented, that we can connect to as women, um, specifically as women of color, interacting in that clinic, right? These things happen to us all the time. Of course, Claudia has all of these other layers, right? And so there is, and I, I talk about kind of the emotional labor of that interaction, right, as the subject that she is um, and you know, what it, what it requires of her. And that's in addition to all of the barrier, all of the other barriers, the financial barriers, the, you know, the, the uh, political barriers that she's, that she's dealing with. Um, and you know, as a mother, I think it's really interesting because you know, usually, um, you know, when we take our kids to the doctor, the doctor relies on us um, to know what's going on with our kids. And we tend to be the resource, the right? If our kid gets sick at school, the doctor calls the mom, even if they have the dad's phone number, the doctor calls the mom, um, or the school calls the mom, you know, and uh, the doctor kind of knows that the mom has this information, right? Um, and so, you know, there is, there there usually is a little bit of that believability when it comes to being a mother and kind of, you know, understanding or, you know, being able to communicate what your kid's health needs are. Um, But because for Claudia, there were so many other layers that were uh, interrupting, you know, uh, that experience or that were interacting with that experience in the clinic, it was making it really hard for her, but it didn't, mean that she um, ever stopped advocating. I mean she always always kept going and um, did whatever she needed to do um, to you know get her daughter at least um, the best situation that she could in that moment.
1: Yeah, I was when as you were talking, I was thinking about the idea of the mental load and how so many women carry it. I think in the household, in the family, um, and that definitely showed up in the you know in the book. And except, and, and as you said, um, Claudia was just tenacious in her seeking care for her daughter. And as I read the book, I wondered. I was thinking about kind of the role, I guess, of culture in the book, and I thought about this in relationship to the book. The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman, which is a book about a Hmong family with a sick child in the biomedical system. And this book kind of makes the point that biomedicine itself is a cultural system by showing this clash between the beliefs of the Hmong family and the kind of cultural practices of biomedicine and so i know that you know there are you know critiques of this book and whatnot but it but i'm just using it as an example of of one way in which you can see sort of culture operating in these in these texts and and it's a common text that's taught i think in medical anthropology classes Um, but then in your book undocumented motherhood motherhood it presents i thought maybe like a different view of culture where we see claudia as you said, she's going to the doctor. She's going to these specialists. She's very tenacious in seeking care, but then we see these other practices of like being being a comadre, which seem to be um, something maybe culturally different and and very supportive. And so I wondered how you saw culture or the social coming into play in this book.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I I could I could probably speak a little bit about um, uh, when the spirit catches you and you fall down and uh, but I won't go into it too much and because I understand the connection that you're making to culture um, but you know one of the things that when I when I was writing my book I did have some of these other texts in the back of my mind. Um, And, you know, was really trying um, because one of the things that I that I'm writing against in my work is uh, or kind of a subscript is the exoticization of, um, you know, these kinds of communities or the kind of the continued, you know, marginalization or kind of, um, yeah, alienation of a group. Um, And so, you know, there is an emphasis on. Um, shared experiences right and and connecting shared experiences as we experience them uh, within the medical system um, and right so I'll leave it at that and and so you know when it comes to culture, I think that you know um certainly biomedic- the biomedical system is a culture in itself um and you know I argue it's not and it's a culture that's not just alienating for, you know, quote unquote, different ethnic groups, but for all, for everyone, right? Um, you know, the, the culture of biomedicine is, is extremely individualistic um, and, and completely, largely negates community and the social and interconnected, the, how interconnected we are, not just to each other, but to our environment and to our social and, you know, cultural narratives and scripts and how all of these things are a part of our health experience. Um, and that that makes a, a, um, a healthcare system then that is really blind to um, all of a lot of the, not only the different ways that we get sick, but the different ways that we heal. Um, and so, you know, that exists regardless of whether it's interaction with a Mexican immigrant or, you know, um, a Mexican American immigrant, like like myself, like my mother. Um, which i think this is, is why then i include some of these other um also some of these other stories right to show kind of you know that that quintessential alienating aspect of the medical system in this country um but at the same time you know there are um, aspects of community that are you know that are unique uh, to um, immigrant communities and to Mexican communities the book focuses on Mexican communities but you know, probably other Latinx communities as well, um, and I, I talk about Comadrasco because this this book focuses so much on relationships with uh, between women and mothers, and one of the things that does happen um, for again one of the experiences of immigrant women is that um, you know. These are women that often in their home country are very well connected to other women, right? They are either living with their mother or mother-in-law or sisters, sister-in-laws. So there's usually a community of women, um, you know, that are helping each other, generally that are supporting each other but that are also supporting each other within the within care work the care work of the household as it relates to women uh, as it relates to children men and you know and themselves um and when they come to the united states they're kind of pulled out of those uh female communities and you know are kind of left to live in this very american experience where you kind of everyone fends for themselves you know in very individualistic society um and those groups then those connections are a lot of times are lost and they have to be rebuilt um and i wanted to show how important those connections are for women because yeah, we do carry a lot of the mental load. Um, and, you know, when you're when you're an immigrant woman, especially, you know, you're not only dealing with um, all of the kind of politics of moving to a new country and figuring out how to live and survive within this country. As a mother, you're figuring that out for your children. Um, and then there's everything else, right? Again, going back to all the different layers of our experience, don't just get erased because you're undocumented, right? So there's all the other stuff of you know, dealing with, you know, her own health and her own relationship, Claudia's relationship with her husband and, you know, um, interactions at her daughter's school and figuring out how to help her daughter with her homework. These everyday um, experiences and realities that make up 95% of our life, right? More so than the big things. And, you know, um, comadres are these... um, friends, uh, mothers, uh, partners, right, in life where some of that mental load can be um, uncarried, I I guess, um, or where women can undrown themselves, right? And I use that that term, desahogarse, a lot in the book, um, where we can talk, where we can share experience, um, where we can Have receive empathy, not just sympathy, and um, talk to people who understand what we're going through because they're also going through it. Um, And that is healing in a different way. Um, Comadres then also do for each other what they do for their children. They tell each other to go to the, they remind each other to go to the doctor. They remind each other to take care of their health. Um, and so you know these are very important, very powerful female friendships, right? Um, that are are that are important to healing. Um, I wanted to include this also because there's so much about um, when it comes to marginalized communities and alienated communities, especially undocumented immigrants. It it seems like it's it's always about um, how horrible everything is, right? How miserable we are, how miserable communities are, um, these communities as you know excruciatingly painfully vulnerable and um, and that's it, right Victims and that's not to say that that's not a reality it is a reality but it's not the only reality right there's also there is also joy there is also life there are resources and there is healing within these communities Um, And that's important also to talk about. That's important for people like me and for the children of immigrants and the immigrants that are reading about ourselves to read that as well, right? Because we are not sitting around all day just talking about our suffering. But when you read the literature, all it is is about our suffering. And so it's also important to talk about the other aspects of our lives and our realities and our relationships um, that are life-giving, that are life-informing, and that um, we use to take care of ourselves and to uh, recuperate um, because the, we uh, you know, as you can see, and, you know, as you, you know, as a researcher, you know, the, the resources are not out there, right? It's, it's, there's, it's all in access. It's all, you know, there's, there's so much struggle in getting access to, you know, the, the, um, the material resource, right? The, the health insurance, the doctor, the, you know, the, the clinic, that is a struggle, but then there are things there are resources that communities use to support each other in those struggles to get you know to, to to get through it or else you know we wouldn't see communities surviving to the extent that we've survived and the children of immigrants doing the incredible things that they're doing if it weren't for these resources, right um, And that's important to show because, um, so much of the narrative around immigrant communities is um, a resource deficit narrative. When it's especially in public health, it tends to be about you know resource deficit and and not about you know the richness also, right? I I don't necessarily think a lot of times I think especially in North American society everything is so black and white, so either or. Um, And, you know, one thing I argue a lot in my work, not just here, but in many places, it doesn't have to be either or, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, either vulnerability or resilience. We can talk about both. It doesn't have to be about what we're, you know, just what we're missing. It can be about what we have and talking about what we have doesn't have to negate what's missing. You know, we can kind of, you know, talk about these, again, these complex, multifaceted human experiences that that's, that's the reality.
1: Yeah, I thought the relationship, the comadre relationship was just beautiful uh, between the, the women that you included in the book. And I liked that there was, you know, a name for it and, you know, something to recognize this practice. And as you said, I thought that it really presented this, you know, strength in, in what might be, you know, as you said, kind of constantly interpreted through the idea of deficiency or a deficit. Um, and so I'm glad that you lifted that up and lifted up those relationships. And so in the book, um, we mentioned that you mainly focus on one individual figure, but you do include your own story and your mother's story also in the book as a kind of complementary, I guess, to Claudia's story. And so I wondered um, how you manage the vulnerability um, of on your and your mother's part in revealing this information. And I asked this as someone uh, as it's kind of a selfish question in that I'm currently drafting a memoir. And so I'm navigating these challenges myself, but I, I'm sure that other people would also have these questions as well about, you know, positioning yourself and, and revealing your own story as the author of the text.
0: Yeah, so i um including my mother and in, um, you know, a little bit of my own experience, um, as a, as a daughter, mostly, um, really happened. It happened organically. Um, you know, I, I, I am a mother myself and I have, you know, been, uh, maybe like a lot of people, you know, um, a challenging relationship with, I've had a challenging relationship with my mother. Um, and, you know, when I was, listening, uh, to Claudia's story and I was, you know, figuring out how to put it together. What was the best way? Um, I, you know, I just, I couldn't help going back. I was, I was, I was jolted back (laughs) to, you know, experiences with my mother questions. I had, um, things that I didn't understand, um, from a daughter's perspective or that I had never asked, you know, listening to Claudia talk about um being separated from her daughter, the feelings that she expressed, the, the 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 tears, the sadness, the fear that she that she shared about being separated from her daughter. It made me think about my mother um and and what her experience may have been like. I never um so my mother was born, she's she's a Chicana, so she was born and raised in Chicago. And um I'd never thought about my mother as having a, a a migrant experience. Um, but you know, as I was listening to Claudia and I was thinking about our lives um and our past, I thought, well, you know, she experienced a lot of these different things. And the border was a very significant, I mean extremely significant um part of her uh journey as a mother, right? And and her her entire experience, I mean, really defined her experience as a mother, even though she was born on this side of the border, you know? And so, um, I always remembered the years that I lived in Mexico with my grandmother as just kind of an adventure and made me really close to my grandmother, um, uh, my, my paternal grandmother and kind of that side of the family. Um, and I never thought about what my mom would have felt like, right. Not being with us. And so I decided to ask her and I decided to kind of, you know, treat her like one of the research subjects and kind of interview her. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. I think that part of it, um, there were, they were really difficult questions because I wanted to know her experience, but I also um, knew that it was going to be really hard and awkward um, because of, you know, the tension in our relationship because of the tension around these stories mostly. Um, but it helped to kind of in, you know, with my mother, which is very different than what I do in other interviewing experiences and other interviewing experiences. I try to make it the, the experience very conversational and very comfortable, um, and not so, you know, question and answer so hard. Um, but with my mother, I think I kind of reversed it a little bit and I tried to make it a little bit more professional, like more, um, you know, just very kind of strictly stick to the interview. Um, I think to at least for me, it made it easier to kind of handle the emotions that were coming up. Um, and just to kind of be there face to face, um, And, you know, my mom is also a very quiet, pretty introverted person. You know, she would not be the kind of subject that you would interview for a book. You know, she just doesn't like talking about herself. You know, she doesn't like being the center of attention. And so it takes a lot, you know, to kind of pull information from her. And so it it was it was kind of awkward, uh, to say the least. And um, it got easier as as it went on. Uh, But, you know, there were moments where my mother would cry remembering, you know, leaving us and having to, you know, and where you could I could tell that she was trying to explain herself and she was trying to kind of, you know, we 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 both knew the end, we, we knew the end of the story, but she would kind of slow down and kind of, you know, really try to justify why she had to make the decisions that she made um, you know, to send us away. Um and, you know, then seeing her, how how much pain she felt with being away from us. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't, it just, it humanized her for me, right? And so, you know, um, it it made me kind of see her as not just my mother, but as a woman in her own right, a human, a person um, that was dealing with a lot of different things that I can't even imagine. Um, and who was trying to do the best for her family, you know, and left her country, left the comfort of, you know, what she knew to a country that she didn't know and, you know, really tried really hard to assimilate to, you know, um, the reality that she had to assimilate to, to make things work, you know, doing things like going to the markets and selling food in the markets. I mean, I can't even imagine my mom (laughs) doing that. I mean, she's just such a quiet person. I can't even imagine her, um, you know, selling tacos in a market, you know, yelling, you know, yelling at the top of her lungs for people to come and buy food. Like it's just, you know, when I think about it, it seems amazing. And so, um, all of that stuff kind of came up and, you know, one of the things that I do in my work, um, that I'm really passionate about is that, um, that it that uh vul- the the vulnerability of the the writer or the and the anthropologist as author, um uh I really I really loved you know writing culture. That's kind of one of the books that at least I was you know I've always been inspired by, um, and this idea that you know we aren't um, these kind of objective tools of science. You know we're not a fly on the wall, and I know that we're so far along you know in 2023 that it seems. Cliché to say that now within our field, but I do think that we still operate that way sometimes. Um, It's still not, we're getting, I think we're getting better. We're getting to a place where the autoethnography and the self is more welcome um, within ethnographic writing, um, but not, but we're still not there fully. Um, And so, um, but I, I believe in this very much because I think that, you know, a lot the majority of these ethnographic texts that we write are an, are an exercise in self-discovery, um, you know, and there are all kinds of our own issues and traumas behind them, um, behind why we research the things that we research and, you know, pretending like that's not, it's not, it's not there. And like, we're just asking an objective question is not helpful. Um, and so, um, I've always been interested in kind of integrating, um, Um, or, or speaking to that kind of uh, anthropologist as author and creator, right? Um, Co-constructor with, within a narrative. Um, And so I, I, I wanted to do that, but I also wanted to, um, so Ruth Behar says that, you know, vulnerability is a practice, right? It's learned. Um, it's not something that, you know, just, it just happens. And I did very much learned that in this book. Um, you know, it, the book took so many different, um, phases and uh, drafts, um, to get to a place where I felt comfortable. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's a very fine and, um, it's a very fine line, I think, that you walk um, with a, that I was that I was walking with this book because it's not a memoir and it wasn't about me and I didn't want to decenter Claudia, you know. Um, I didn't want to compare myself to her or my mother's experiences to hers. So I, I make it really clear, um, you know, throughout the book that the experiences are not that are not they are not the same, um, but they're coming from similar questions, right? And and there are roots. And that's important as well. Um, I think especially for a a Latinx subject, um, it's important because our families are multi-status families, are diverse families, we are diverse racially, we're diverse um, in terms of status, in terms of gender, all of these kinds of things um, exist within our families. And so um, the border affects us in multiple ways. And so, uh, you know, that that becomes a way to kind of speak to our interconnectedness, which is a big part of, you know, one of the important takeaways from the book is our interconnectedness, but also, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the kinds of experiences that uh, are shaped by the border and that become uh, that impact other aspects of our identity, like motherhood, Right regardless of what side of the border you're you're on. So my dad was undocumented, my mom wasn't, but the, the border then, because she decided to marry an undocumented man, becomes a part of her mothering experience and something that she has to deal with, right? Um, so um, I hope I didn't stray too much from the question. I think
1: no, no, no! You answered the question. Yeah, yeah perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that was that's no, that's great. Um, I, I like that context of talking about your mother as well of how she is. She sounds like my mother. In that, my mother is also very quiet and very introverted. And I can only imagine, yeah. um, you know, doing in doing an interview, I'd have to, you know, um ask a lot of questions and things like that to, uh, you know, to, to get the, to get the ball rolling with, with the talking. So I think that was, uh, that was great to, to describe that. Um, and you mentioned also the author as the, the, yourself as an author and constructing the, constructing the text. And I wanted to ask you about writing the book because as I was reading it, I read it as kind of a series of choices that you were making in how you wanted to present the material. And so, for example, you don't have many, you know, citations or footnotes or endnotes in the text. You, you do have, um, you know, bibliographic references at in the back. But to a certain extent, you kind of tell the story straight, I guess, in the in the descriptions of the, you know, of the different people and their and their experiences in the medical system. And so I just wondered if you could talk about that, writing the book and you know why you made some of the choices you made in, in the way that you drafted the text.
0: Yeah, so I didn't want this text to be an academic book. Um, I didn't want it to be a traditional academic book and, and, and really an academic book at all. I, I think that it works well for academic spaces and that it can be used academically, but, um, it's not primarily that, um, I wanted it to be a book that was, um, that read as dialogue, as narrative. Um, and so as I was writing it, you know, I really had to unlearn a lot of the things that, um, the kind of these hard fixed academic writing practices that I didn't even realize, honestly, that I had so strongly because I've been writing creatively, um, my whole life. Um, and I've been, I do different kinds of, you know, within limits, but I, I do different kinds of creative interactions even in my articles. Um, and, you know, I, I, I tried some things out in my first book. And so I've always been playing around with creative writing. Um, but when I really sat down to write this book and to kind of deconstruct, you know, the traditional um, uh, ethnographic text. I realized that there were some, some, you know, that there were, there were some kind of ha- hard, you know, um, practices that I had that I still had to kind of let go of. And so, um, you know, I read a lot of, uh, narrative nonfiction, um, you know, uh, historical nonfiction and, um, and, and a lot of other things, um, I worked with a writing coach, actually, um, who was really just kind of ended up being a lot of moral support, you know, to just kind of say, yes, you can say that. Just just say it. It's okay, (laughs) You know, that's allowed. And and it was great because there were it was a reminder that there are so many other ways of writing, you know, um, and of kind of constructing narrative and stories um, and telling stories that are not just um, in the kind of scientific academic way that we that we write in the for the for the academy, um, and so 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 that was from the very beginning. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do with the text. Also, there's a lot of dialogue in the text. The text is, as you said, it's primarily dialogue. Um, so there there really isn't a lot of um, you know there wouldn't be a lot of citation anyway because a lot of it is kind of the direct dialogue. Um, and then in the places where there is, um, or there would be traditionally, um, yes, then I offer, um, kind of a, a bibliography or references at the end that are similar to what, um, authors of nonfiction texts do, um, where you kind of, you know, point to a section in the book and then, and then reference the work that, you know, that, that you were, um, that inspired that, that particular thought. Um, it also, it also helped a lot that I had published a couple of articles before this book. And so I kind of got a lot of that, (laughs) um, uh, um, the academic referencing out in some of these other places. And so it, 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 it did allow me at least kind of mentally, you know, to speak more freely, um, within, within this book. Um, um, yeah. So the, the other thing that, you know, I did at the end, which Honestly, it was, um, a combination of reviewers and the editor. (laughs) And, you know, that ended up becoming, um, or making me do this kind of last, this references at the end, because I, I didn't even want to have that. Honestly. Um, I wanted, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't want to direct so much, right. I didn't, I didn't want the book to, um, I didn't want to say, okay, this is what you, this is how you have to think of it, right? Um, and this is again, a lot of times I was uh, constantly thinking about how to respond to anthrop- to my field, right to anthropology, which is, is something that I kind of had to work through because not everybody that was going to read it was an anthropologist. Um, but one way that I was trying to respond to the field was that, you know, I feel like in, in anthropological writing so much, uh, a lot of the time, you know, we're so, um, uh, we're so uh, concerned with the audience understanding the research that we did in a very specific way, and we're so terrified of it being misinterpreted <laughs> in any other way, you know, that we really, you know, we really drive it in, right? And so we did, the ethnographic texts are really good about telling you how to think about something, right? And, and, and that's how we learn to write, right? You can't just put it out there you got you put it out there and then you tell us what we need to know about it right how do we put it together how do we understand it what is the resolve right and life isn't resolved that way right human beings are not we are very messy. The, the anthropologist that is writing it is incredibly messy. And, you know, just as, you know, our subjects were complex and were messy. And so, but we always kind of, you know, tie everything. And, and ethnographic text has, has a kind of a beautiful bow at the end, right? It's all kind of tied together. And um, I wanted to leave some of that messiness, some of that confusion, but, you know, alas, it, it you know, it, it I think it worked out so we came to this we came to this uh, agreement i think um me and the editor and you know the reviewers of doing this kind of um sources at the end um that becomes more like a thinking community right like a creative co-constructing intellectual community rather than, um, you know, this is how to think about it, right? Um, But I think it serves both purposes. And so I I really, really enjoyed writing that last part. I think, um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed writing that last part and saying, look, these are some of the books that have inspired me in writing this material and that that tackle these issues, um, in other ways. If you're, if you're interested in, you know, different aspects of this book, these are others, these are other sources that you can go to. Um, and so really kind of speaking to it as, a as another kind of another community, right. Was, was, um, was helpful for me and kind of closing that up. But I think also just really added, um, I, I do admit it added a, an important layer um, to that book and kind of offering the reader a resource um, to understand more.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, the kind of negotiations that we have to make uh, between the author, the reviewers, the editor, and, you know, what to include and what to leave out. Um, and then as you were saying that as well, in the beginning, you talked about letting go of certain practices. And I found myself having to do that as well when I took a class on memoir writing. And I and I realized just how ingrained my academic writing habits were in that class when I had to read back my uh, little excerpts and things like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, I I have really, you know, I have really uh, become ingrained in this, in the particular style of writing that becomes very difficult to undo. Um, and so thank you for these uh, resources that you shared about how to try to move away from that. Um, so one of the other questions I had, I guess, was about you're about the doing the research of the book and you have, I I was absolutely fascinated by these blind contour drawings that you have. And I, I teach ethnographic research methods. And so I usually include some aspects of visual methods in the class where we talk about using a camera, either a video camera or, you know, photography. Um, And sometimes I do also show students, you know, how people have used drawings in the past in, in, other, in other research, but I've never seen these blind contour drawings. And I think that what, what you do is you look at an individual and you draw the person using these lines you know, without looking down, I guess. And it seems like the cover of the book has one of these, uh, is an example of one of these drawings. And so I wondered if you could talk about this method, how, how you learned it and uh, how it helped you with your research and in expressing your findings.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, so in another life, I was, I was an artist, uh, so I've always had this, um, you know, interest in the visual. Um, and then when I was in grad school, I did um, uh, an ethnographic film uh, specialization. And so, you know, the, yeah, there's always been that interest for me. Um, so I, I learned about contour drawing, you know, I guess just throughout my art education um, and so I've, I've known about it, uh, but then it gets u- it does get used a lot within medical humanities um, kind of education as well um, as a form of study and um, you know, deeper understanding to the human the human subject. And that's what the blank contour is. And it is exactly what you said. Um, it's drawing a person without looking down at the page, but also without lifting the pen. And so it's it's supposed to be a single line drawing, which even makes it even more challenging. Um, and they are um, they they are specifically studies um, to get to get into kind of a better relationship with the subject of study. Um, so I thought it was um, I do I do a lot of different things when I'm trying to figure out um, how to start. Um, when I'm starting a writing project or when I'm in the middle of a writing project, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of starts and stops with this project um, because I'm, all, as I said, I'm also a mother and a lot of things happened in my life. I had a baby um, <clears throat> and then the pandemic happened. And so there were a lot of different uh, moments where I had to, where I had started and then I had to come back to the work. And so um, whenever I'm kind of trying to get back into my creative flow, um, I will do a lot of um, journaling and drawing um, to and I listen to the um, I'll listen to the interviews in different formats. And so I'll I'll put them in my headphones and I'll go for a walk. Um, you know, there's there's lots of different things that I do to kind of try to try to piece things together. And so, um, yeah. So one of those in one of those moments, you know, I was uh, looking at pictures of Claudia, and I just started drawing her, and I started doing these blind contours and trying to get more. You know, this is where in some of the in some of the text I talk about how youthful she is, and you know, and and this is where I really felt like I was trying to understand her more, connect with her, see her. Um, and you know, just kind of be in a different kind of more embodied relationship with Claudia, right? Outside of get outside of my mind a little bit. Um, you know, and blind contours are are so interesting because they are um, never what you think they're going to look like. You know, you're so focused on the subject, and you know, you're 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 seeing it. You think you're seeing the person so clearly. Um, because you're not distracted. You're looking directly at every angle, every crease, every shadow, every line movement that probably they don't even know is there. <laughs> and, you know, and then you look down at the page and it's a complete abstraction. Um, and to me, this is, this was, this is exactly what, this is exactly what writing is, you know? I mean, as, and, and, and even ethnographic writing, right? And it's like, as, as, no matter even even as we think we're getting we're being so clear and we're being so intentional and so focused and so specific on the subject at hand it's whatever we produce is still an abstraction it's still it's still coming from our perspective it's still coming from our experience in that moment right and so Every drawing, um, and and I didn't include all of them in the book, but you know, I I included some of the better ones um, uh, and and some of the messier ones, I think. Um, But you, every time I drew her, even the same photo, it would come out differently every single time. I I did the cover. I don't even know how many times I did the cover. Every single one was different. Um, And so, if I were, I you know, always say like, if I were to write this book again today, it would be different. You know, just like a blind contour, because I'm different, she's different, everything is different, and so um, you know, we're 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 always in this kind of, and I, I say this in the book, you know, we're always in this relation, you know, this flux, this dialectic, this back and forth with each other as human beings, um, you know, interacting with each other, feeding off of each other, taking from each other, um, impacting each other, changing each other, um, and you know, to me, it was just kind of a, this is a very a very simple um, but very powerful representation of of that, and sort of in essence, kind of what the text also is is another message that's coming out of the text itself.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so you've given me another method that I can also introduce to my students. I oh yeah, I was just, <laughs> I'm so taken by them. It's and I, I like them because you don't necessarily one doesn't necessarily have to have um, I would say immense I'm, I'm talking about myself immense talent in oh yeah you know, you artistic drawing um in order to to produce these um because I I have very little um talent in rendering anything visually and even with my students I've brought in other drawings that people have done and they're they look at them and they're like I I can't I can't do that at all um <laughs> and so because because there's well, so intricate
0: and these just and that's the seem very about, accessible. A blind contour is it's not about the drawing. It's about seeing, right? It's a practice in seeing and how we see. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, having talent or knowing how to draw is 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 secondary, right? It's about how we see.
1: Yeah, that, that's great. I, I love that. Um, and I like how the, the drawings... Uh, include your subject in the book without revealing you know who she is. We, we can't you know, I, I couldn't look at these and then go out and find her. Um, right. and, and your book kind of documents her even though you know she is undocumented. So I, I just thought that was really beautiful. Um, and so for as a final question, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, your book makes several interventions in the midst of you know news about border crossing and undocumented migrants, Um, you know, these ideas of people being a drain on the system and the stress of motherhood and caregiving. And so I wondered what you wanted readers uh, to take away from the book, Um, you know, what you wanted people to, you know, to come away from understanding after reading your book, Undocumented Motherhood.
0: (sighs) You know, one of the things that I've I've become really... um, happy about is, is how people are receiving this book now that it's been out a couple of months only. Um, uh, but just seeing how people are responding to it is, is, is incredible. And there, there are many of the messages that, uh, you know, that I've, that I want to get out that are getting out. Uh, but I think that one of the most beautiful things that I've seen is kind of the intergenerational, um, healing and, interest that is arising um out of the book so you have you know children of immigrants that are reading it you know students that are reading it and and then going and having conversations with their mothers and it i mean it, it makes it makes me it makes me emotional because you know this is important right we are in a moment right now and i hadn't thought about this originally so i think this is a new kind of Um, hope, right? Message hope. I think a lot of the things that I've already said, you know, like interconnect, how how interconnected we are, um, the importance of our differences, um, but also understanding that we have to be able to kind of see our humanity the humanity in each other in order for us to be able to really value those differences respect those differences understand the importance and the and the 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 um the impact of those differences right and so that those two things happen together right that we can have shared human experiences and also respect and understand and feel compassion for the differences in our lives and the and the hardships that we feel it, uh, individually. Um, so that's a big part of it, particularly of the message that I want to, that I want to, um, uh, emphasize with this book, especially for undocumented immigrants, because this, these are groups of people that have been so dehumanized, um, and objectified, right. It is, it is important to see, right. So again, going back to how we see, um, people, right. Not just as a political status, Um, a label, a story told through the eyes of an angry politician or a xenophobic rhetoric, you know, but actually seeing this person. um, And there's so much that we, there's so many, there's so many other things that we can see each other when we look at other things, like what we might share as mothers, what we might share as equally part of a messed up medical system as, you know, as women, right. And, and as daughters, and so all of these different things kind of, they're more, not to say that those are the only things, but they're more like, they're, they're kind of almost like um, uh, helping hands, right, in, in connecting to each other, right, and, and learning, relearning, like doing a contour drawing, relearning how to see each other in different ways um but also go, kind of going back to this intergenerational healing we are in a historical moment where there is so much talk about generations and you know millennial generation and the gen z generation and you know breaking millennial uh, breaking generational traumas and you know all of the different things that our you know gen x parents and our millennial parents did wrong and um, how we're trying to change those things, and I think that's so powerful and so important. Um, and at the same time, I think that you know, just because we are changing and in, in big, important ways, doesn't mean that we can't also have dialogue and go back and try to understand the experiences of our elders and of our caregivers, um, and and talk to them and and find out you know what it is um, what it is that made them, what happened to them, what made them who they are, Um, you know, understanding those stories is such an important part of healing because we are interconnected. We are not, we can't just cut people off, you know, write people off, especially people that are important in our lives. Um, And I don't think that that it really is an option for Latinx communities anyway, because, you know, community and family is so important to us. So even if we do try to cut somebody off, it hurts it. It hurts us for the rest of forever. And so having those conversations, seeing children talk to their mothers and go back to their mothers is so beautiful because their mothers experienced a lot, you know, And, and I think I still read back through parts of the book and this, the, the parts that my mom, the dialogue from my mom still makes me cry um, because I just can't imagine some of the things that she lived through. And I look at my daughter and I see my daughter and I think my daughter right now is the age that I was when I wasn't living with my mom. You know, I wasn't with her, you know, and it's such a beautiful age, three to four, you know, two to four is such a beautiful critical formative age and she didn't have me and it makes me so sad for her it makes me sad for me but you know this happened to both of us and so I think it's so beautiful to see um you know young people talk going back to their to their caregivers um and I hope that that keeps happening more um you know that's ultimately reconnecting to each other is um and particularly seeing in immigrant communities in their full humanity is a really important part of this. The message of this book,
1: great, thank you so much. This book is so timely, and you know, each person. Sometimes I say each person is a whole world, and you really help us to see that in this in this book. So, thank you so much for it. Um, I've been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Farfan Santos, who is the author of the book Undocumented Motherhood. Conversations on Love, Trauma, and Border Crossing, published by the University of Texas Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for sharing it with us on the
0: podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Regan. I appreciate it.